Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Now, your ideas don't have to wait. Now, they have everything they need to come to life. Dell Technologies and Intel are creating technology that loves ideas, loves expanding your business and evolving your passions. They push what technology can do so great ideas can happen right now. Find out how to bring your ideas to life at Dell.com. Welcome to now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Oh, hi there. I almost didn't see you. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Bullett, and I am an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, sort of quietly suggesting that my joke was terrible, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. With my magic book, I'll shower those clumsy lizards with my power. <laughs> that is perfect. Yeah. He told me I had the perfect quote for this uh, this podcast. I, it's from a song that I didn't even know existed until about five seconds ago. Okay, so we're going to do the, uh, the whole catch you up. Um, if you're just tuning in... Previously on Tech Stuff. Nintendo started out as a playing card company in 1889. The, in 1889, gradually diversified, then got out of several other businesses, including the toy market. But that did give them the idea that possibly this whole video game thing might be an idea. And they started creating uh, video game consoles that were only able to play a game or maybe si- up to six games. But, you know, kind of like the old Odyssey system in that it was very limited. It was all hardwired into the system. You could not put a cartridge in. There was It was not cartri- cartridge-based at that point. Also, Meanwhile... Also created the Game & Watch, which was the, ah, yes. the portable variation of that. But again, 
single game. That's all it was on that system. Meanwhile, the arcade craze has taken off all over the world, and Nintendo finds itself uh, with a, a complete bomb and uh, asks a young designer. Miyamoto. <laughs> Shigeru Miyamoto. To give it a shot, can you come up with something that we can use in the video game market? And he thinks a storyline would sell games, so he creates a simple story about a, a a giant gorilla who hauls off a a woman named Pauline to the top of a skyscraper and challenges uh, a young uh, plumber. Well, actually, he was just a guy with a big mustache yeah. and overalls named Jumpman yeah. to come get her. And it uh, defies just about everybody in the company's expectations by becoming a huge hit, yeah. inspiring several uh, several follow-up titles and licensing agreements with these different console manufacturers to bring them into homes because home video games are becoming popular in the early 1980s, so Ninten- late 70s and early 80s. Yeah, Nintendo decides to get into that market while the getting is good. And I want me some of that action. They in- they introduce the Nintendo Family Computer, and they launch it in Japan on July 15th, 1983. The Famicom? Yeah. It what sold a great name for a console. 14,800 yen. Uh, yeah, great name for the, a console, the Famicom. Uh, so if you're not familiar with the Famicom, that is what in America we referred to as the Nintendo Entertainment System. I was going to say, if you're not familiar with it, yes, you are. It didn't immediately <laughs> come over to America because <clears throat> at the same time as it was launching in Japan, America, in, in North America, there was the video game crash. We now, talked about that. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Yeah, oh, there's, wait. there's an entire podcast about it, but to give you the short form of that, what happened was the video game market was doing really well. Uh, so many players got into the system, not, not so video many, game players, so many, many companies yes. got into creating video game systems and video game titles that the market became saturated. And there were, there were, there were several really, really good games, but there were way more crappy games. Oh, and, I own some of those. Yeah, we talked about some of those in our worst video games of all time podcast. There were some of the, the, the two big ones that leaped to mind were the licensed version of Pac-Man for the Atari 2600. And of course, the number one game on everybody's list, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Almost everybody's. Yeah. But no, a lot of that, that was the thing. A lot of the game, the idea was these games are a hit in the arcade. Let's bring them to the home console. So you had games like Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, um, stuff like Amidar, Burger Time, Reactor. And they tried so hard to make them work on home consoles immediately that they ended up being complete and utter dogs. Yeah, they were just... I mean, Amidar was... Horrible. It was such a rush to get to the market so that, that quality was was really sacrificed in yeah. order to get uh, sacrificed in in favor of speed. Well, Nintendo ended up not launching in America right away because again, this video game crash was taking place mostly through 1983, and so it wasn't until October 18th, 1985, that the Famicom made its debut in the United States, and of course, then it was known as the Nintendo Entertainment System, and originally. Nintendo took a very, very controlled approach to uh, introducing its system. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't like a, a nationwide launch. In fact, you could originally only get an NES if you were willing to go to New York City to get it. Wow. That was the limited market they introduced it to. And it, it was something like a hundred thousand units and they sold out of 90,000 of them in a heartbeat. Um, in a New York minute. Yeah. In a New York minute. And the original, NES, when it first came out in New York, 
was loaded with extras in order to tempt people to buy it. Because you got to remember, at this point, the home video game market in the United States is toast. Yeah. People are starting to move to personal computers. Uh, video game consoles are looked at as things for kids, and it's and there's just no consistency and quality. Mm-hmm. So Nintendo had an uphill battle here. So when they launched it in New York, here's what it came with. This is a huge difference to the way you buy a video game console today. Mm-hmm. You got the console, mm-hmm. you got two games, you got two game pads, you got the zapper light gun, and you got the robotic operating buddy, or Rob, for hmm. $125. Wow. Now, that would be about $250 in today's money. But so that's still sort of affordable in terms, I mean, you think about the PlayStation 3 debuting at what, $600? Yeah. $599 in the United States? Yeah, so it's, it's you know, it was a pretty... Uh, amazing deal at the time. And uh, it does very well, and then Nintendo starts to open up in other test markets, places like Chicago and Los Angeles. Um, still very gradual mm-hmm. until it goes nationwide pretty much in 1986. Uh, and at that point, the uh, the price had moved up to $199. Mm-hmm. So the 125 was kind of the introductory price to kind of get that word of mouth campaign going. And, it, and once it went nationwide, they figured they could price it at 199 and that would be the right market value for the Nintendo Entertainment System. I don't know. It might sell like hotcakes. Yeah, it sure did. And in 86, that was also when, uh, in Japan, Nintendo introduced a special disc system accessory for mm-hmm. the Famicom. Because remember, in Japan, it was, it was, uh, built as a family computer system. Right, right. Not just a video game console. So, it would allow you to actually use discs to, uh, uh play games on the Famicom back in Japan. You could even go and have you know, a, a disc made of a game or whatever at, at special vendors in Japan. Now, in, in yeah. the United States, we were not so fortunate as to get access to this, although I'm sure there are plenty of com- collectors out there who have the Japanese version of it in America. That's always been a hot, like, underground market in the United States. Yeah. Now, uh, keeping in mind, too, that uh, in, in the late 70s when – or the mid-70s when consoles were starting to come into the homes – uh, all this stuff was hardwired into the, to the console itself, as, as Jonathan was just saying a minute ago. Yeah. And they figured out that it was possible to uh, make a connector slot so that all the ROMs would be actually in the cartridge itself. Yeah. And it would make a connection with that cartridge when you plugged it. You had to give it a firm push to get it snapped into the slot the right way. Also, you had to you had to breathe into the cartridge. That was that was required before you. That's what we always did. You, know, you had to. Go. <laughs> Before you, uh, well, it's good to get the dust out of it. Of course, uh, some of the Atari cartridges had a a little flap that protected the guts. Not all of them, but some of them. Um, but yeah, the, the Nintendo, uh, entertainment system used similar cartridges too. They were, they were wider than the, uh, the Atari cartridges, of course, and, and bigger. But, uh, yeah, they were using the same types of programmable ROM chips that you would just snap into the, uh, the game slot didn't yeah. have a disc like yeah. the game systems do now. So in 86, they also introduced some titles that became big. Uh, Commando, huge NES game. I think I'd heard of that. Yeah, fun one too. Ghosts and Goblins, one of mm-hmm. the most difficult games ever. Also mm-hmm. fun, but hard. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was a 1942 came out in 1986, if that's not confusing. That's a little weird. Uh, and in 87... Two other big names in Nintendo uh, franchises debuted. Uh-huh. Castlevania. Yes. 
and Metroid. Metroid. Yeah, so a lot of the the games that would become sort of emblematic of Nintendo Entertainment System started to launch right around this time. And uh, the NES does incredibly well. Now, I never owned an NES. Neither did I. I had a friend who lived down the street from me who did own an NES, and I used to go over to his house all the time and play. And in fact, I played one of the, the games that won the best video game of the year for Nintendo. Now, that, that happened uh, back in 1985. Uh, that game was Punch-Out!, Ah, uh, yes. I remember. Punch and we're talking out. about the arcade game at that point. But man. Oh, the arcade game was oh, a huge hit. I loved Punch-Out so much. That's one of those arcade consoles. Like, you, you know, you always have that fantasy of, some of us anyway, of owning certain video game consoles, like having a special room that would just have video game consoles in it. Punch-Out would be one of the consoles I would own. Punch-Out, there, there are two other titles I can think of right off the top of my head that I would have to own for that. And one, the, one of them would be the original Star Wars uh, arcade game. Ah, yes. Use the force, Luke. And also the, uh, Spy Hunter ah, video yes. game. Those mm-hmm. are the, like, so those would be the three. Elevator action, maybe. Yeah. If I had room. But if I only had room for three, it'd be Spy Hunter. Uh, it'd be, uh, Star Wars and it would be Punch Out. Forget those of you keeping score at home. Punch Out is the only one that's a Nintendo game. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yes. But there you go. Yeah, one of the three games would be a Nintendo game. Because when most of us think of Nintendo, we don't necessarily think of the arcade games that much. Because they made such a huge name in the home console market. Now, Donkey Kong, of course, being like the big exception. Yeah, well, that's how, I think that's how Nintendo was able to sell the Nintendo Entertainment System was that they could say, hey, we were the guys behind Donkey Kong and Donkey Kong Jr. and Super Mario Brothers. Yeah, you don't have to worry about us taking oh, some Mario sort of, uh, yeah, uh, well, especially when they were porting games from the arcade to the console, you know, since it was the same company that was producing these hit games, their titles and the were so much more faithful. Yeah, and and so they, you know, that could be a message they send out to the market is like, you don't have to worry about some terrible port of our game because we're the ones who made the arcade game, we're the ones who made the console. You know that the console is going to reflect the the gameplay that you are familiar with in the arcade. Well, one of the things that Jonathan touched on in the first episode, and again. If you haven't listened to it, we'll wait for you to come back yep. and listen to that first. Uh, but one of the things he touched on was that the uh, the uh, CEO uh, the the CEO at that time of of Nintendo insisted that everything go through him yeah. for approval, and that was important in a way because it ensured that there was going to be some quality in the stuff. They weren't just throwing it out the door like certain other companies that I can mention. Yeah, like Atari. I didn't mention. Well, that was part of the problem of the 1983 video game crash. Yeah, so Nintendo but, had had taken the certification process. Yes, and that that was a selling point for the Nintendo Entertainment System that the other consoles didn't have at that point. Yeah, because if a title was going to be on the NES, it had to meet certain criteria. It had mm-hmm. to it had to pass certification. It's and frustrating it, for developers, right? Because a developer might have a great idea, but for some reason they run up against a barrier that to the developer seems arbitrary. And then, uh, you know, we see this today with developers who develop for Apple, for example, for, uh, for apps on the iPhone and the iPad. There are developers who say, I submitted this, I thought it was a great idea, and then I'm hitting a, a wall. And in some cases, it may seem arbitrary to an outside uh, observer, but to Apple, it may seem like, no, this is not following our rules, and this, the rules are there in order for us to uh, ensure that the user has 
a good quality experience at the end of the day. And that was Nintendo's approach, too, with the video games. They said they did not want to fall into the same trap that Atari and Coleco had fallen into, where they started to put out and publish games that – or they allowed third-party publishers to publish games that just did not measure up. Now, that did not mean that Nintendo was free of bad games, but they weren't – glutted with them like the Atari was toward the end of its days. Yeah, it, it killed both Atari and Coleco. Yeah. And if you say, yes, but Atari is still around. Not really. That's a different company. Different company. They purchased the name. Yeah. Uh, anyway, anyway, um, yeah, that was that was one of the selling points. Um, and the other was, uh, in addition to good marketing, they had something that they could market around, and that was uh, Miyamoto's characters. Um, Donkey Kong had made a name, well, not literally, because his name wasn't his name at that point, but had a name character in Mario. Yeah. And they were able to use those characters in successive games. Yep. And so uh, they basically had exclusivity. You didn't see Mario on games that weren't licensed by Nintendo. Nintendo was was uh, basically ensuring a future for itself by creating a storyline in, in its games that could be carried from game to game. Yeah, they really started to protect their intellectual property. They were very protective of it. So in, in still fact, are. still are. Yeah, you still are not going to find uh, Mario pop up on, say, an iPhone game, which that will come into play in, at the end of our conversation today. But, uh, yeah, so Nintendo has taken this approach, and it's working well for them. Now, in 1988... Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is 99 years into the company's history, for those That's of you of keeping cool. score. So 99 years in the company's history, Nintendo makes an agreement with another company mm-hmm. called Sony. I think I've heard of them, too. Yeah, they were going to work together and put out a new video game console system that would use optical discs instead of cartridges to hey, store games. Hey, that seems like a great idea because Sony's really good with this electronic stuff, I yeah. hear. Now, unfortunately, as long as Nintendo doesn't tick them off. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. Uh, Nintendo and Sony could not see eye to eye on many aspects of the deal, and ultimately, the deal fell apart. Now, this this collapse. Nintendo, Nintendo, yeah, Nintendo. The collapse of this deal would later lead Sony to develop its own video game console system called the PlayStation. I think I've heard of that too. You may very well have heard of that. Nintendo and, wishes it hadn't. Yeah, PlayStation ended up causing a big headache for Nintendo, particularly in Japan, in a couple more years. But we'll get into that. In 1989, so on the company's centennial, which is so hard to think of. Like, there's so many companies out there, and you're like, how many of them? are a century old or older. Not many. Not many. Uh, not many are still around. Nintendo is one of them. Uh, in 1989, the company introduces the Game Boy. Yes. Now, the Game Boy sold for $89.95 in the United States, which is about $150, about $156 today. Uh, and the Game Boy sold very well, partially because it was marketed not just to kids, but to adults who would spend time doing things like riding the train or the bus. If you were one of those people who was commuting on a system like that, then you would want something to uh, occupy your time. And, uh, yeah, yeah, Chris is humming the theme song to the game that was packaged with the Game Boy that became, like, it was, if you want to call about talk about a killer app or a killer oh, title, man. this is, like, one of the top killer titles of all time. We're talking about Tetris, mm-hmm. which was not a video game developed specifically by Nintendo. It actually came from a Russian developer. But Tetris was such a compelling puzzle game, and it still is today, uh, that it it was probably responsible for selling more Game Boy 
uh, units than just about anything else. I played Tetris for so long on my Game Boy that I could see when I turned off. You could tell this uh, this was a good game. When yeah. you turn off the game and you close your eyes to go to sleep and you're still seeing those little shapes drift into place. Or when you are moving and you're packing up the moving van and at the time you're going, do, 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 yeah. do, do, do. Ah, oh, crooked sp- piece. I don't, I needed an L shape. <laughs> uh, yeah. So why did I get that sectional? Um, yeah. I, uh, I spent many, many hours with my Game Boy. Yeah. Yeah, it was a very popular uh, device. I mean, that was it, my first Nintendo system. And Game Boy also was developed by, uh, it was designed by Gunpei Yokoi, who we talked about in the last podcast. He was the fellow who was hired and had had turned Nintendo's fortunes around by introducing a toy that became the Ultra Hand. Yes, uh, basically an extendable claw that would grip uh, toy balls, or you know, that was what came with it. But you could use it for all kinds of other yeah, games. Yeah, like harassing the family cat. Oh yeah, uh, but yeah, the I'm um, sure that happened. Once more or often, twice. More often than not, probably. Yeah, so he, well, he was the fellow who designed the Game Boy. So, yeah, very popular design. Very simple design. You know? Well, so, unlike his first portable foray, uh, this was this was basically the uh, the Atari 2600 of portable games. Because before that, they were all hardwired. Yeah. Like the Mattel games with the little LEDs that would go, you know, bleep, bleep, yeah. bleep. And even even Nintendo's uh, uh, game ga- <sighs> games were all hardwired at that point. So this was the first cartridge-based one that really started to take off. Huge. So in 1990, Nintendo introduces the Super Famicom, <laughs> which in the United States uh, a year later, in 91, was known as the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the NES was starting to near the end of its life cycle, although it was still supported for a few years after this. Oh, sure. Um, and the NES was an 8-bit video game system. The SNES, the Super Nintendo, was a 16-bit game system. Twice the bits. And um, at that time, Nintendo boasted an ownership, a market share of about 80% of the United States game industry and 90% of the worldwide game industry. Mm -hmm. So truly a dominant company at this point. Uh, Also, this is a good time to mention the, the, the character designs that uh, Miyamoto came up with, the reason why the characters look the way they do is because the 8-bit gaming uh, era was so low resolution that you had to pick a very simple yet iconic design to be able to show people what your character looked like. So he has Mario has a giant nose, so you could see that he had a nose at all. Mario has a mustache because it was easier to see than a mouth. His, <laughs> his, uh, his overalls, his hat, all of that was designed because... In order for him to show up well against multiple backgrounds, he had to have a very simple design. And we're talking all the way back to the Donkey Kong days. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, even in the 16-bit, the designs get updated, of course, because now you've got higher resolution. But uh, they're still based on that very simple premise. And it was something that guided Miyamoto's design for for many years. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now, right around the same time in Japan, Nintendo starts to face down lawsuits brought uh-huh. against it by – competitors who were accusing Nintendo of fixing prices with retailers so that essentially the Nintendo products would stay on store shelves and 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 keep selling while the competitors would end up getting pushed aside. Yeah. Um, Nintendo was is no stranger to lawsuits yeah. in the 20th century. Which makes sense. I mean, you know, if you're the dominant player, then the antitrust lawsuits are going to start popping up because uh, really for a while Nintendo was, and no pun intended, the only game in town or so it seemed. Now – 
we're going to, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. So SNES is really popular. A lot of mm-hmm. really popular mm-hmm. titles come out on the SNES, but I don't think I need to go into all of those. Right. Um, let's, let's talk about one of Nintendo's major missteps, not okay. the power glove, which was its own problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nintendo hasn't always succeeded when it's come up with some innovative products. And one of those innovative products that really bombed Virtual Boy? Yes. 1995's Virtual Boy. Uh, but what could be wrong with that? Virtual reality was the wave of the future. Yeah. We were all going to be walking around with these things on our heads that would show us these amazing landscapes. Yeah, we landscapes would be immersed in a computer stuff. world that would be uh, indistinguishable from our real world all around us, as long as our real world all around us is a monochromatic vector graphic <laughs> as it representation. Out, as it turns out, there's a glitch in the matrix. Yeah. So the Virtual Boy comes out in 1995. It's a head-mounted display. It's actually on a little stand, and you lean forward. It's almost like a pair of binoculars. You you lean your head forward, and uh, you have a screen for each eye. Mm-hmm. And it rel- if only it didn't have to be hardwired into your neural network. I'm <laughs> kidding. I'm kidding. It relied on something that we call parallax. Mm-hmm. And uh, parallax, we've talked about on this podcast before, but in general, parallax is the phenomenon we experience because our eyes are not located in the exact same spot in our head, or else we'd all be cyclops. Uh, we it gives have, us distance vision. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a difference between uh, the way an object appears in your left eye and the way it appears in your right eye, and your brain assimilates the information from these two images, and that helps you judge things like depth. Mm-hmm. It's not the only thing that lets you judge depth, and there are people who have trouble with parallax who can still tell generally how far something is away. And, of course, the further away something is, the less parallax matters because the, the – uh, Converging points become closer and closer to being parallel mm-hmm. instead of uh, converging on a single point. Um, but anyway, uh, it used these two screens, one for each eye, to give the illusion of depth. And it was uh, monochromatic and used red graphics, mm-hmm. which meant that you know, you're staring at a, uh, at a black screen with red graphics on it. I remember Wario showed up in, uh, in Virtual Boy. And at first I thought Wario was introduced in Virtual Boy, but that's not true. Wario, Wario actually predates Virtual Boy by a few years. He, he first appeared on a Game Boy title. But uh, I remember there was a Wario title on Virtual Boy. And a friend of mine um, – no one – actually, I guess none of my friends actually owned a Virtual Boy. I remember testing it out in, in various toy stores. Toy stores, not toy stories. Um, you got a friend in me. Yeah, thank you. And it launched at around 180 bucks when it came out in 95. Uh, it did not do well. Uh, people were disappointed in the graphics quality. They did not feel that it was uh, particularly compelling. And there were a lot of reports of people suffering massive headaches while trying to play this thing. I can't imagine why. And there, and there just weren't that many compelling titles either. It was kind of like a triple threat, really. You had a, a, a system that just didn't feel like it was fully baked. You didn't have a lot of really great titles, and you had reports of people having headaches while playing it. So, uh, yeah, the Virtual Boy ended up being a um, a bomb. A non-virtual bomb. Yeah. Um, and apparently, I think 800,000 of them were produced, so they're now collector's items. There aren't that many that ever hit the wild. At least they didn't bury them in the desert. No, they didn't grind them up and bury them under the desert like a Certain video game titles were in the they didn't 80s. Have to ask Atari where theirs were, so yeah. they didn't put them on top. Yeah, we want to put them next to ET. Um, yes. So, how how do you recover from a flop like that? Well, they weren't. I would argue that the the company's name wasn't damaged uh, to the point where uh, Nintendo was hurting, but that was certainly uh, 
a thorn in its side. Yeah, it wasn't like the Virtual Boy ruined their reputation entirely. It was just that it was not a success. Uh, but in 96, they did bounce back quite a bit. Mm-hmm. They introduced their next video game console. Now, uh, this was during the... You know, we, we had the 8-bit systems, we had the 16-bit systems. A few 32-bit systems came out, but Nintendo did not jump on that bandwagon. Instead, uh, Nintendo bided its time for a 64-bit system and surprised the world when the Nintendo 64 came out. And I say surprised because they decided to stick with the cartridge-based games as opposed to moving to an optical disc system. Yeah, so let's see, who who were their competitors? Atari had basically, uh, you know, they had come out with the Lynx. Yeah, we but had a, it was not doing well. You had Sega, which we if you've listened to our podcast about Sega, you realize that Sega although it was always an also ran when it came up against Nintendo. Except Nintendo really kind of uh rebuilt the home digital uh video game market. Yeah. And uh and Sega came along about that time and they gave they they were the uh the Apple to uh, Nintendo's Microsoft in this world because they pushed Nintendo harder. Yeah. And we're a good competitor. And in fact, their marketing slogan was Sega does what Nintendo don't. Yes. Because they had, uh, Sonic. Sonic was designed to show off the speed of the, the Genesis, uh, system. Yeah. And home. And it did a great job of, of showing that off because he moved very quickly. The graphics 16 bit system looked very nice. Yeah. Um, and then you had Sony. Sony. Yeah, the PlayStation really, in Japan, the Nintendo 64 did not do so well. And it's because its main competitor was the Sony PlayStation, which just seemed much more compelling. The graphics seemed better. Um, and they were using an optical disc system, which meant that the games could be far more complex. The cartridge mm-hmm. had a limited amount of space that you could hardwire a game onto. And also it meant that there were limitations with a cartridge-based game that you didn't necessarily have with an optical system game. However, there were also positive sides to go with cartridge-based. Yes. The big one being that you didn't have to worry about loading times. Yes, and you also don't have to worry nearly as much about ruining the cartridge as you did about scratching it. Yeah, disc. it's much more robust than a disc was. But yeah, the the big one being loading times because you know with a optical based one, the laser had to find the right track on the CD in order for it to start playing the right information and then load that information into the uh, the console's memory so that you could start playing. Whereas with a cartridge based system, it just because everything's hardwired, it's never changing. It goes straight to where it needs to go, and you didn't have to have these loading screens. Mm-hmm. And Nintendo thought that was an advantage. And uh, in the, uh, the United States, it did quite well. In fact, some of the best games, some people would argue, of all time came out during the Nintendo 64 era. But that controller. I liked the controller. I actually enjoyed that controller. Uh, and it was the first one to have a thumbstick in mm-hmm. Nintendo's history. Uh, not the first Not the first. <laughs> one to have a thumbstick ever, but the first one for Nintendo. Yes, before they were using the D-pad. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the like GoldenEye came out for the Nintendo 64, and that was a big hit. That big, was big hit. One of the one of the games that people still will refer to as one of the best video games of all time. Yeah. Um, Oddly enough, I think it's probably uh, arguably more favorite of people uh, than the actual movie. Yeah. I, and then that's just personal observation, not based on anything other than that. So don't the, write me and say, but no. And there were other games like Mario 64 really kind of reinvented Mario yeah. mm-hmm. quite a bit. Um, people thought that was pretty innovative. I was a huge fan of the wrestling games that came out for the Nintendo 64. They were very deep. They allowed incredible customization. You could create your own wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there were phenomenal games, and the Japanese games were even more robust than the American ones. I had all the American titles because I didn't have the uh, Japanese system. You, you couldn't play Japanese games on an American system unless you had an adapter um, or a Japanese, you know, or, or you just went ahead and bought a Japanese game system. Right. The two systems were not compatible. They were region locked for the, um, you know, that's the easiest way of saying it. But uh, I loved a lot of the games in the N64. Well, N64 does well in the United States, doesn't do so well in Japan. In 2001, uh, they need a hit. They introduced the Game Boy Advance. Mm-hmm. But they also introduced the Nintendo GameCube. Yes. So there's a five years have passed since the N64 debuted. 96, N64 comes out. 2001, you get the game, the GameCube. And this is when Nintendo moves to the optical discs. Except they don't use the big optical discs. No, they They're use the mini same discs. Size that, same size as a CD or DVD. No, these are smaller. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that kind of part of that is a DRM thing. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it was one of those things where where people were oh, so now Nintendo's getting on the the disc train as opposed to cartridges. Get and on the disc train. They did not look back from that point forward. Uh, nope, they had removable storage. Yep. And. Uh, and a very nice game controller. Actually, the uh, the GameCube was my first Nintendo home console, not counting the Game Boy because that's a portable. Yeah, it also had some uh, compatibility stuff with Game Boy Advance, mm-hmm. so you started to see some convergence here, where you could you could have the two systems interact with one another, which I like. Yeah, that was kind of cool. And then in two thousand two, uh, Satoru Iwata becomes the first Nintendo CEO who was not related to the founder uh, Yamachi. Mm-hmm. Um, by marriage or by blood. So he was the first, it was the first time Nintendo had a CEO that was not part of this legacy. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, he took over at that point. In 2003, Nintendo introduced the Game Boy Advance SP, which was a thinner and lighter version of the Game Boy Advance. And, uh, in 2005 and 2006, Nintendo starts to launch their DS line, which interestingly looked a lot like some of the old, uh, the, the old, uh, uh game and watch um, systems mm-hmm. that uh, had the clamshell design, to double screens. Uh, but in this case, they included a touch screen with t- a stylus, and so that was kind of a differentiator in the home or the handheld market. Yep. At the time, because remember, in 2005 and 2006, smartphones had not really become a thing in the United States, and games for smartphones were pretty much unheard of at that point. Yes, at mm-hmm. least in the U.S. Um, and then the Nintendo launches the DSi in April of 2006. And then we have to, you know, the, the Wii also comes out in that, around that time, the Wii console, which is the current Nintendo console on the market, mm-hmm. introduces mm-hmm. the Wii remote where you've got the motion gaming and Nintendo kind of surprises people by taking aim at the casual gaming market. Yeah. See, um, if you'll remember at that point, uh, Microsoft had released the Xbox and the Xbox 360. Yep. Um, and Sony had and then, the PlayStation 3. Uh, yeah. I mean, they, they, the PlayStation 2 was a huge success. Yes. Uh, the Xbox was a huge success. And basically, Nintendo was taking it on the chin with the GameCube, although yeah. the GameCube was sophisticated. Um, and it had, again, the the uh, uh, brilliant licensing maneuvers of Nintendo by keeping Mario and the Zelda franchise and some of the others, Metroid, uh, alive on the console and locked into the Nintendo console. The yeah. fans of the franchise, again, Miyamoto's thinking that there should be a story is playing into Nintendo's success because without that storyline and the fans want the storyline, yeah. um, Nintendo probably, 
I, I think you could argue um, that Nintendo may not have survived past that because uh, there was an onslaught from Sony and Microsoft. And they needed, again, they needed something to differentiate them from the mark, and the, from the rest of the market. And the yeah. Wii did that. Yeah. And it was, when the Wii came out, it really did make a big splash. I mean, it had huge sales figures and it was leading the video game console sales in the United States for, for ages. I mean, for the longest time, it was, uh, the question wasn't who's in the lead. It was who's in second place mm-hmm. because you knew that Nintendo was in the lead. But, uh, Nintendo sales have slowed down more recently mm-hmm. uh because we well a lot of reasons the the game console's several years old now mm-hmm. and um as are the Xbox and the PlayStation models the current models but Nintendo also has the problem of it aimed for casual gamers and casual gamers don't tend to be the kind of people who rush out and buy the next new title necessarily they might be satisfied with just a few a handful of titles cuz they they game casually they're not that they're not as heavily invested in the system as a hardcore gamer is. Yeah, I mean, um, gamers will replay games, even on older consoles. They will keep older consoles and older computers around to play classic games that they really love. Uh, case in point, the newer versions of GoldenEye. Yeah. Long after the movie franchise has moved on several films, yeah. um, GoldenEye yeah. is sticking around on newer consoles. Yeah. And so you've got, uh, with the Nintendo Wii, you've got this issue with saturation again, just like with the video, uh, the playing cards back in the, the sixties. You've got, uh, you know, the argument is just about everyone who wants a Wii has a Wii. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a whole lot of reason to go out and buy more. So of course sales figures are going to start to, to falter. Plus, and, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Plus Microsoft now has the Kinect. Yep. And Sony has the move. So now so they've, the they're all control, using motion control. Right. Motion control is not as big a deal anymore. Um, and so also the smartphone revolution and the, the gaming on smartphones and social networks has taken a big bite out on Nintendo because Nintendo was taking aim at that casual gamer. Well, back in 2006, when the Wii comes out, the casual gamer wasn't really being catered to that way. But today you've got everything from phones to, uh, to, uh, you know, set top boxes in some cases to, um, uh, you know, the social networks that all have these casual games that are available. Nintendo's no longer got a, a lock on that. So it's, they're actually, in a way, you could say their competition is way more fierce in that area than it would be if they were competing against Microsoft and Sony. Well, now I would argue that, that Nintendo is finding itself at a crossroads. Yeah. Um, it has, announced the Wii U, which is the next uh, version of the Wii. Um, Yokoi had said, uh, as you will recall from the last podcast, that Nintendo was the kind of company that takes mature technology and utilizes it to create new products, mm-hmm. which is exactly what they did with the Wii. That enabled them to hit a lower price point out of the out of the gate. Um, and people criticized the hardcore gamers who liked the Xbox 360, who liked the PlayStation 3 because it had uh, full-on high-definition graphics, uh, criticized the Wii because it only had the uh, the lower-definition, um, well, it's still high-def, but it, it's uh, DVD resolution, not the 1080p. It was right. 720p. Um, and, or I, is it 720p or 720i? Anyway, uh, well, se- at any rate, it's, 720 it's, lines of resolution. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not top of the line. Yeah. And uh, the Wii U is aimed at the high def market, and it has a again they've reinvented the uh, the controller, 
it has a it's a much bigger controller that has uh, additional functionality. It has its own screen. Um, so but it's almost also, like combining the uh, the DSI with the um, exactly with the yeah. Um, and some people really like it. Some people really don't. We'll have to see when it actually gets out on the market whether it succeeds or not. But the DS is competing with smartphones and other devices, and people have pointed out, and rightfully so, why would I pay $30, which is sort of the price point for a new DS game, when I can get the same exact game for my smartphone for $5? Yeah. And and my smartphone does stuff other than play games. So some people say that perhaps Nintendo should get into the smartphone business, or perhaps Nintendo should re- uh, you know, reevaluate its its line on not licensing out its its prime core material to other companies. We should also point out the 3DS, which launched in 2011, is another Nintendo slow oh. starter. It has not done nearly as well in the market as they had hoped. That, of course, is the DS system, the handheld gaming system that has the glasses-free uh, 3D effect mm-hmm. using a, a, essentially a, a variation on a lenticular display. If you'd like to see one taken apart, you can see that on our website. Yeah, I, 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 we bought one specifically for me to demolish, and I did, and there was much wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yes. But the, uh, yeah, the 3DS was sort of Nintendo's approach to try and combat the smartphone, uh, casual gaming market by mm-hmm. introducing this new element, 3D, which was not available on most other systems, but it just has not taken off. And a lot of people who, who have enjoyed the 3DS have told me this is anecdotal. But mm-hmm, they have told mm-hmm. me that they they just turned the 3D off because it's just more of a problem than than uh, uh it doesn't it doesn't enhance the gameplay for them. Yeah. So the, the XL, however, has done reasonably well. It's yeah. a DS with a larger screen. Yeah, and uh, I, uh, I we need to start wrapping up this uh, this episode. But I did want to point out one other thing. We we've been talking about lots of different people, and I do have a kind of a tragic ending for one of the the folks involved in this story. Um, Yakoi, the guy who was the designer who came up with the Game Boy design. He also designed the Virtual Boy, so not everything he touched turned to gold. Uh, he decided to leave Nintendo in 1996. Mm-hmm. And he went to found his own company. But unfortunately, tragically, uh, he died as a result of a car accident in 1997. Mm-hmm. He, he, his car rear-ended a truck. Uh, on a highway, and when he got out to inspect the damage, he was struck by another driver and died as a result. Mm. Uh, so that was something I thought I'd mention. It was an, a person who really was instrumental in the design of a lot of early Nintendo products, and his design elements carried over into current generation Nintendo products. And I thought it was uh, it was important to remember him. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, it's sad, of course, the way um, the way that all turned out. But I thought it was uh, something that we should definitely touch on. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to Nintendo in the future. Recently, as of 2011, the company has been struggling financially. Uh, it's just it's one of those things where the video game console market saturation has caused problems. The 3DS sales have caused problems. But the company has returned from setbacks in the past. Yeah. So we can't we can't just discount Nintendo and say that they're out of the game. Like they're they're an also ran at this point. There's always the the chance that they're going to reinvent the home video game market yet again. Yeah, and it's it is uh, well. Just before we recorded this uh, a few days ago, they announced that their earnings were going to be less even than they had predicted before, um, which has caused some uh, mumblings of doom and gloom around the industry. But um, uh, you know, they could also end up as Sega did. Uh, you, you wonder what the creators of Mario and, and Link and, and all 
those other characters, Kirby and so many of the others that we love, um, would, would do. I mean, Sega found as it got out of the video game console business that it still could make great video games, uh, some not so great, um, but still sell them to, uh, markets and reach out through other people's hardware. And I think they've been somewhat successful in partnering with Nintendo, um, to do that. Uh, so it is possible that even if Nintendo gets out of the hardware business, they could still end up making fantastic games around their, their wonderful characters. Um, so hopefully, uh, you know, if they find a way to, um, uh, that they'll find a way to continue one way or the other, but uh, they're still not they're still not out of it yet. And I'm no. interested to see what happens with when the Wii U comes out, um, you know, in the market in the, in the not too terribly distant future. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to keep our eyes open, and uh, we'll be sure to report on it, of course. So that wraps up this discussion about Nintendo, the two-parter episode. If you guys have any companies you would like us to focus on, or even other topics that have nothing to do with the company whatsoever, let us know. Send us a message. You can email us at is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, With SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Diamonds Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you can't resist. Buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. That's right, a stunning diamond tennis bracelet at no extra cost. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. So hurry into Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet will not last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Hello, iHeart listener. We have a confession to make. Both iHeart and this commercial you're listening to right now would probably sound a heck of a lot better on the new Roku Pro Series TV. It's got side-firing speakers that fill your room with sound, Dolby Atmos audio that puts you right in the middle of the entertainment, and the ability to pair seamlessly with your home theater sound systems that already have surround sound and booming bass. If all that sounds too good to be true, it'll sound even better on the new Roku Pro Series. Your hearing isn't better. Your TV is. Hello, I'm Dr. Michael Mosley, and I want to let you know about my new immersive BBC Radio 4 podcast series, Deep Calm. It's all about how to tap into and activate a remarkable system that we all have hardwired inside of us, our relaxation response. And it's been developed to be listened to at any time you want to really unwind. I hope you'll listen wherever you get your BBC podcasts.